Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Julian Thomas, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and winner of the AAR Book Award in Analytical Descriptive Studies. He's here to speak to us about his book, Faking Liberties, Religious Freedom in American Occupied Japan, published with the University of Chicago Press. Thanks and congratulations. Thank you so much, Christian. It's really good to be here. Yeah, this is a really neat book and certainly deserving of the war, the award. Um, unique and interesting topic. And uh, for me, and I'm sure for, for people who do pick it up, um, it's certainly relevant for, for everybody in religious studies and thinking about how our work uh, matters and, and what the afterlife of that work might be. Um, can you can you talk about how this project emerged? It's it's not something that a lot of people would think of, uh, you know, probably because they don't even know the story. So what's what's some of the background here in terms of uh, the bigger picture of what people might need to know to understand your project and and how you got into this as a book project? Sure. Um, so one of the origin stories of this book, and there are several, but I think um, one that people on listening to this podcast might resonate with is. You know, in my first year of my PhD program, I was taking a couple of seminars simultaneously. And as you do, I saw some linkages between the things that I was reading. So in one seminar, which was a theory and method seminar in religious studies, um, we were uh, reading Talal Asad, among other things. And I was um, sort of tasked with presenting on um, Talal Asad's Formations of the Secular. Um, and uh, then in the same week, I also had a class presentation on a series of readings about the Allied occupation of Japan, which was the period at the end of World War II when um, the Allies led by uh, Americans um, occupied Japan and engaged in this series of democratizing reforms. So I had read about the occupation before, um, and the standard story of the occupation was that wartime Japan was dominated by a state religion, and with Japan's uh, defeat at the end of World War II, the occupiers came in and democratized the country, er eradicated the state religion, and uh, replaced it with real religious freedom. That was the sort of language of the standard historiography. But as I was reading this account while also reading Talal Asad, I couldn't help but think that the account was just wrong. Um, as I was thinking about um, secularism as a political project, about the sort of demands placed on quote unquote non-modern peoples as Asad describes it in his introduction, um, I was thinking, well, what are the ways that uh, we could think of the occupation in terms of um, secularism? Um, and as I started thinking about that, I started to, you know, I, I wrote some seminar papers, I started to present my work. And at one point, uh, a colleague in Japanese history said, you know, you're talking about the occupation, um, but this story makes no sense if you don't think about what preceded the occupation. So uh, I wanted to tell a story where um, the occupiers were telling this um, triumphalist narrative about having uh, eradicated quote unquote state Shinto and replaced it with uh, religious freedom. But to tell that story, I had to go back in time and describe in, in detail what was going on in Japan before. What I found was that Japan had a constitutional guarantee of religious freedom. 
And moreover, Japan had a really robust domestic discourse about uh, the nature of religion and more importantly about what it meant to uh, provide religious freedom to citizens. When I started looking at this, I realized that the occupier's story was utterly false and that Japan had a certain mode of secularism in the period when its first modern constitution was in effect from 1890 all the way up to its defeat in 1945. And furthermore, when I was looking at um, occupation records, military government records, I found that Americans claimed to have brought religious freedom to Japan, but the Americans themselves totally disagreed with one another about what religious freedom was. When we look at their correspondence with each other, we see one agency fighting against another agency, one person disagreeing with another, some people saying that religious freedom was the freedom to be Christian, others saying that it was the freedom to choose one religion out of a range of options. And this got me thinking in much broader terms beyond uh, you know, the, the original questions about what it means to free religion and how that might be related to concepts like religion making uh, and competing definitions of religion itself. Yeah, uh, man. And uh, I'll, I'll preface the conversation here that uh, the, the book really does so much and is really generative, I think. So I, I hope people will will check it out. Um, but certainly this idea of religious freedom, um, and I think you call it uh, infeasible and unjust, uh, if I if I got your words correct there. Um, but so what what's what's at the root of these questions of religious freedom and um, you know there's been a lot of uh, great scholarship on this recently where do you feel like your book fits into that body of scholarship yeah great so obviously i've been deeply influenced by the literature on religious freedom what i think of as the critical literature on religious freedom uh, especially you know winnie sullivan's work the impossibility of religious freedom uh, Elizabeth Shockman Hurd's uh, Beyond Religious Freedom. Um, also looking at people like Anna Sue, uh, who comes to this from a, a legal background, um, but looking at the history of religious freedom as a facet of US foreign policy. And Tisa Wenger's great book, uh, Religious Freedom, The Contested History of an American Ideal. Oh, and, and you know, Finbar Curtis's book as well, which I think um, does a really wonderful job of thinking about um, the ways that, as he puts it in his introduction, um, conflict brings religions and claims about religion into being. And I think that this is also true. I'm looking at a military conflict, its aftermath, and the ways that um, claims about religious freedom are brought into being in that moment. Um, so I see myself as being in conversation with all the people that I, um, that I mentioned. Um, one of the things though that I noticed in surveying that literature is that a lot of it is very good about dealing with the question that I think is at the core of our discipline. I think religious studies is a discipline, but I, at the core of that question that's at the core of our discipline is, um, you know, basically what is religion or what are the political ramifications of people claiming that something is religion? So, the people in critical religious freedom studies have done a really good job of dealing with the religion question. What I saw less um, was dealing with the other part of the equation, which is freedom. And thinking uh, really deliberately and carefully and, and equally critically about that operative term. Uh, and so I, although my book started off as a project that was basically about how 
competing parties to find religion in order to free it. Uh, it necessarily also became a project about how we understand freedom and how competing conceptions of freedom are just as important to the project of freeing religion as competing conceptions of religion are. Um, so your, your book takes us through uh, a lot of history, different contexts. Um, I also like that you kind of set it up that, uh, that readers can come to it with different interests and kind of satisfy their needs, so to speak, um, in the way they kind of uh, enter the book. And, and um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, I mean, this seems like very, very deliberate uh, structuring, uh, you know, even more so than a typical book. Um, so could you talk a little bit about kind of how you conceptualize the book, both in terms of these uh, two halves that you have, but then also um, these these kind of complementing themes, um, you know, where, where did these, why did these themes arise uh, uh, as prominent to you? And, um, and then how do they fit into kind of the, 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 the two, two narratives that you're telling? Yeah, thank you so much for this question. So the first thing that I want to say is a shout out to my readers, um, you know, the, <laughs> the, the anonymous readers of the manuscript um, really pushed me on a few things. And it was originally the book did not have halves. And originally, it didn't have this structure. Um, one reader in particular, who I now know is, is Jason Ananda Josephson Storm um, at Williams College, um, suggested that I uh, include a chapter from the pre-war period that was set in the United States. Uh, that became chapter three, um, and it's about territorial Hawaii and the experiences of Japanese American Buddhists uh, in Hawaii's plantation economy and, and how that related to their ability or inability to secure religious freedom. Um, having added that chapter, I looked at the book entirely differently. And once I saw the book in a new way where I realized that it was at least as much about the United States as it was about Japan. You know, I'm trained as a scholar of Japanese religions. Um, so that didn't come, that didn't occur to me right away. Um, then I, I realized that it had a, a natural parallel structure. Um, and once I, I reorganized my chapters in this way, um, everything clicked into place for me. You know, it's often at the very end stages of a project where we actually understand what we're trying to do. You know, like a lot of like graduate students out there, like you don't really know what your dissertation is about until you write the abstract or like right before you submit or something like that. And I think it's true for books as well. Um, so I, uh, I set the book up. It's eight chapters, eight content chapters. Um, the first one is uh, called Japan's Preoccupation with Religious Freedom. A little bit ago, I mentioned that this was my attempt to uh, really describe what was going on um, before the occupiers got to Japan uh, in 1945. And the three of the four chapters are take place in Japan. All of the chapters deal with materials that are in Japanese language, uh, you know, deal with Japanese language materials. Um, but they're uh, trying to figure out, well, what were Japanese people thinking about religious freedom and how were they in dialogue with global conversations about religious freedom? In the late 19th century and early 20th century, most of the influence was coming 
um, actually from Western Europe, a lot of emphasis on what was happening in Germany and France, um, but increasingly uh, the United States model becomes something that people are taking very seriously, especially as they're looking at, I think plight is, is a good word to use here, looking at the plight of the Japanese American immigrants living in um, the United States who are suffering um, all kinds of discrimination, including uh, religious discrimination. Um, so that's the first half of the book. The second half of the book focuses primarily on the occupation, although it also uh, stretches in the years past the occupation to look at the ramifications of occupation policy, not only within Japan, but also globally. So those are the two halves of the book. But having set up the halves, I realized that each of that th these corresponding chapters were dealing with similar themes. Um, so chapter one uh, of the book just sort of makes a case for why we should think of what I call the Meiji constitutional period, that period from 1890 to 1945 when Japan's constitution was in effect. Um, I, I make a case for thinking of that as a secularist system that's premised on the distinction between religion and not religion. But then in chapter five, I, that's my sort of introduction to the occupation, but I'm also looking at the ways that the occupiers were describing Japan's um, pre-war and wartime system as being a bad or even a heretical secularism. So I'm trying to, so the, the, the sort of theme between those two chapters is the question of secularism. Um, you know, similarly in say like chapter, I won't go through all of them, but in chapters three and seven, uh, I'm looking at the sort of tension between local circumstances and universal claims. So chapter three is the one that's set in territorial Hawaii. And there we have, you know, Japanese um, Buddhists who are making claims to the universal right, or at least the, the um, American constitutional right to religious freedom. And they're, and they're saying this should be applied universally. Um, but their local circumstances are keeping them from being able to really assert that right. Um, and then in chapter seven, I'm looking at how the unique circumstances of the occupation where two governments are simultaneously in charge of the same territory and population, the Japanese government and the US military government. Um, that situation, I argue, bred a uh, it sort of forced a new conception of religious freedom where religious freedom could no longer be a civil liberty that's granted to citizens by their state, but actually had to become of necessity a universal human right. So the local circumstances forced this universal conception. So those are uh, two examples of the kinds of uh, threads that I see running across these chapter pairs. Chapter two and chapter six also have some similarities. Chapters um, four and eight also have some similarities. And I uh, encourage readers, if they're inclined to, to grab the book, to just kind of um, experiment with reading the book in different ways. Um, I, I think that if you're not really into, say, like, uh, pre-war Japanese material, you might find it a little bit bewildering to start there, but it might make a lot more sense if you read chapter five first and then went back to chapter one. And I wrote the book so that you could do that without getting lost. And I think for, for many in at least my generation will appreciate the uh, choose your own adventure approach <laughs> of, the, of the book. Very, very cool. Um, I, I did like that as well. Um, 
again, there's lots to talk about, but um, one of the things I was hoping you could just uh, spend a little time on is kind of the role of scholars um, in these negotiations, in these debates, um, and then uh, kind of the afterlife of our work, I guess. Um, you know, what are the consequences uh, of scholars in the context that you looked at, but then more broadly, um, how, do, how do you think we should think about our scholarship and uh, its potential uses today? Yeah, okay, so. Um, <laughs> Big question, you could take it how you want. Yeah, no, it's it's just, I, I have so much to say. And, um, and, and you know, I think the, the last part of the book makes it very clear that I hadn't, like I, I've been thinking about these things, but I'm not sure that I have a final I'm not sure that faking liberties constitutes the final thing that I have to say about this. Um, but let me, so one of the things, just in terms of the historical material, I was really fascinated to see the ways that religious studies scholarship was operationalized by political leaders for the purposes of governance. Um, this comes through very clearly in chapter five, where I show that the um, relatively obscure writings of this American missionary scholar named Daniel Clarence Holtom end up being sort of resuscitated or rehabilitated or actually given more prominence by the um, intelligence needs of the Office of Strategic Services and the U.S. State Department. Um, so the OSS is the precursor of our, our CIA. Um, and uh, what's happening there is they're the U.S. and Japan are already at war in, in you know, as of late um, 1940, you know, in the, in the early 1940s, uh, late 1941. Um, and then they're trying to make sense of Japanese people. Why are Japanese people the way they are? And a lot of this stuff is utterly racist, of course, and it's utterly simplified and it's all essentialist. Um, so they, they go to the guy who seems to be the expert and he's a scholar of religion and he's written these books um, with titles like, you know, the political philosophy of modern Shinto. Um, and then Holtum, in the context of the war, war writes another book called, um, oh no, I'm, I'm in the middle of an interview and I'm blanking on the title, Modern Japan and Shinto Nationalism, I think it is, but I, that might be wrong. Um, anyway, so this guy's work gets um, uh, sort of drawn upon to tell this story that Japanese um, governance is characterized by this oppressive state religion. One of the things that, one of the important bits of context that's left out is that of course, Holtum is a Baptist missionary who's very, who's got a very um, biased view about what constitutes religious freedom. And, um, and he's also got a, uh, well, he's got a lot of respect for the Shinto scholars that he's learned from and for Japanese people. He also has this sort of biased view premised on the world religions paradigm that um, you know, Shinto is primitive and that Christianity is advanced. And so he's, he's thinking, well, why are these people so beholden to this primitive ideology, right? Um, that as obscure religious studies scholarship, that does one thing. When it starts to inform policy, it does a totally different thing. And it um, ends up creating this notion that there are good and bad ways of uh, distinguishing religion from not religion. And um, when paired with the general civilizationalist and racist rhetoric of the time, it also starts to say, 
um, those people are inferior and we are superior and we need to teach them how it's done. So I think Holtem, and, and Holtem was obviously um, uncomfortable with seeing the ways that some of his scholarship was um, applied in the context of the occupation, but he couldn't do anything about it. Um, they asked him to come to Japan to serve as an advisor uh, and, and he couldn't do it because of health reasons, whatever. So, so then he's just sitting there um, in retirement in California, watching them make policy based on his writings. He disagrees with the policy, but he's like the, it's water under the bridge at that point. Um, I think his example is a really good cautionary tale for all of us. Um, because if we get into normative claims, we all are going to do normativity in some way or another, but if we get into normative claims about good and bad religion, as Holtum did, or good and bad secularism, which I think a lot of people do, I think a lot of scholars are, are more comfortable talking about what they see as good and bad secularism, so I think that's a problem. Um, but it can be the case that political leaders are not going to be savvy to the nuance and political leaders are going to just take what's convenient to them and apply it in some way that we don't quite anticipate. So we need to be really cautious about that aspect of our work. Now, let me talk as well about later in the occupation um, when the people who are sort of responsible for making sure that the new version of religious freedom sticks in Japanese society are doing their work. Uh, we see really close collaborations between Japanese scholars of religion. Uh, I want to just pause and parenthetically say here that Japan has a robust and longstanding tradition of religious studies that dates back to the 1890s um, with like full-fledged departments of religious studies. Um, so there's a, 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 a well-established community of religious studies scholars in Japan working closely with US occupiers who are also scholars of religion in their own right, although they're doing that in sort of a, like sort of as bureaucrats, sort of as students of religion. These people collaborate not only in establishing the post-war Anglophone architecture for the study of Japanese religions. I'm talking about things like flagship journals, like the Japanese Journal of Religious Studies, which is the, the chief journal in my field, it comes out of these collaborations. But they're also putting forward this notion that um, their job is not only to describe religion, but to teach people how to be free. And they do that by writing these, um, you know, sort of op-eds and giving lectures and things like that, that, um, from my perspective today seem to be um, quite patronizing and, uh, and, and so forth. So when I was looking at that, I was thinking, you know, these guys thought they were doing a really good thing. And in, in the time that they were working, perhaps they were doing good. I mean, I don't, it's not my job to cast aspersions on, on what they were doing, but I, it, it also made me uncomfortable to see um, how prescriptive their interventions were, not just normative about, uh, you know, what constitutes good or bad religion. They certainly made those sorts of claims, but they said they would like write in a Shinto priest magazine, you guys don't even understand religion, um, wrote the, the Tokyo University uh, scholar Kishimoto Hideo. He writes in their own, you know, newspaper that they're ignorant about what they do or about the real meaning of religion. And, you know, I think a uh, few scholars of religion would be so bold today. I think there's more sensitivity, but I do think that there's, as we think about 
you know, publicly engaged scholarship and think about um, the ways that we uh, want to have our work be relevant to journalists and to policymakers. There's also this pitfall because many people want the quick and easy answer. You know, many people want the, well, do we like them or don't we? Um, and I, I, my, I guess I'll only speak for myself, but that's not the sort of information I want to be giving to journalists or to policymakers, um, you know, as part of my job. I want them to be thinking with um, nuance and about exceptions to the rule and certainly in a non-essentialist manner um, because, uh, because that's important because we don't live in a world of essences, right? Um, so I guess I'll just finish up my thoughts on this by saying that um, one of the things that I think is really important is for us to not arrogate to ourselves the position of knowing what's really going on, even as we own and affirm our expertise. Um, in other words, we don't want our work to be seen as definitive and therefore give policymakers or journalists some reason to um, do something that we would find uh, you know, politically reprehensible or morally reprehensible, um, we want to always build into our analyses some sort of way of saying, um, this is one way of looking at this and you also will necessarily need to get other perspectives, um, particularly by looking at things at different scales, not only looking at the national scale, but also at the local like person to person scale um, and uh, getting the voices into the conversation that might otherwise be uh, excluded. Um, these are all things that I think we have to do, which is a really high bar to set for the academic study of religion, but I think is a really important one. Yeah, yeah, it does. It, it sparks uh, critical questions for, for us. And uh, there's a lot more to the book. Obviously, you know that more than anybody. Um, I do appreciate your time. I want to congratulate you again on the award. And uh, thanks for making time to talk about it. Thank you so much for this opportunity, and I am so happy to um, have people reading the book.